We are going through a series of messages together called In Accord, what happens in the life of a man or woman when the gospel and godliness come together in their life. It's transforming. If you have your Bible or device today, we're going to be looking specifically at what happens in a man. Now, these principles apply also to women. But Paul was writing to Timothy, his young son in the faith, as he was leading in the church at Ephesus, a very strategic church in the Roman Empire. Paul understood that Timothy's example was strategic, as he'd be shaping and influencing a whole new group of Christians. And so Paul wrote to Timothy and saying, Timothy, here's how you need to pursue God yourself, and these are the things you need to be teaching, certain things that will help others to pursue being godly. And on this Father's Day, I can't think of better words. This stuff is pretty convicting, but this is the pursuit of my heart. I'm not there yet, but I'm pursuing this, and I know many of you are too. This is how Paul wrote it to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 in verse 2. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we, can't take, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. And all God's people said, amen. God, thank you for these words. They are powerful. And they help us to chart a course with you. And they're greatly encouraging because we know that how we may think we have failed in the past, it is never too late to begin the pathway of pursuit of godliness with you. So I'm praying today, God, for all of us, and especially we as men on this Father's Day, that we will understand and undertake the pursuit of a godly man. And we'll thank you, Lord, for all that you'll show us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
In his book, Socrates in the City, Eric Metaxas was talking about a time when Chuck Colson, who was a former aide for President Richard Nixon and also founder of Prison Fellowship, a global ministry reaching out to prisoners with the gospel around the world. He was telling in his book about a time when Chuck Colson was talking about the fellow millionaires and others who lived with him in Naples, Florida. If you've ever been to Naples, it is a garden spot in the country. And here's what Chuck Colson said. Naples is an absolute nirvana for all golfers, and they all come here. They're all CEOs of major corporations, and they retire to Naples, and this is it. 27 golf courses and miles of sparkling beaches and the best country clubs. I watch these guys, they're powerful people. They have this New York look on their face, they're determined, but now all of a sudden they start measuring their lives by how many golf games they can get in. I often say to them, do you really wanna live your life counting up the number of times you chase that little ball around those greens? And they kind of chuckle, but it's a nervous chuckle. Because in six months, they've already realized how banal their lives have become. They've got beautiful homes, castles really. And when they get bored with that, they build a bigger castle. And they're mostly miserable. You know, when I read that, and what Paul was writing to Timothy, I realized, you know what? You need to be really careful of what you're pursuing in life because you might actually get it and discover all the miserable emptiness that comes with it because God has so structured things. You're never gonna find anything apart from him that will ever satisfy like a godly life with him will. Solomon was a king who had it all. He had good looks, wealth, power, wisdom, a thousand women in his harem, building projects, palaces, vacation homes, and a booming economy. In fact, he wrote about it in Ecclesiastes 2 like this. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So what did he conclude? At the end of the book in Ecclesiastes 12, verse one. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. See, Solomon was like so many who have it all. They pursued it, they got it. And what he's telling us is don't spend your days pursuing things that never satisfy. I've had it all, I can tell you from experience, he said. Spend your life instead pursuing God 
and becoming like him and live a fulfilled life now that you'll be enjoying for eternity for the glory of God. This is the pursuit of a godly man or a woman for that matter. And this is the pursuit in a person in whom the gospel and godliness are in accord. Some of Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 6 was related to Timothy's role as a leader pastor in the church at Ephesus. But the precepts he taught Timothy are relevant for every person who desires to have a life that matters, that counts, and isn't wasted pursuing the wrong things. And this is vitally important. I want to speak a moment to the men. Because if I've made any observation in life, having talked and dealt with hundreds of families and had a privilege of speaking all over the place, I can tell you that there is a tremendous need for godly men. Men who are the real deal, who are pursuing God with a passion because they desire to be like him and to show their families how to live that life and who are willing to show their passion for Christ in every area because it's, the, it's real. They are godly men, and they're pursuing godliness. Paul said these principles were not an option, not for Timothy or anyone else. These are the things you are to teach and insist on, he said. Because the gospel and godliness are in accord in the man who pursues being godly. And what does that pursuit look like? I don't know if Paul could have made it any simpler for Timothy. He simply said, you flee everything that does not look like God. And you pursue everything that is like him. The pursuit of a godly man involves fleeing everything that is not like God. He said in verse two, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. If you've been around here a while, you're probably tired of hearing the stories from my life, but uh, I, when I was younger, I spent most of my summers in a little southwestern village in Maine called Keyser Falls. Our family homestead was there, my mom's parents. I used to hang out with my cousin Donnie and all of his little buddies there, and we went on a lot of adventures. And one of our favorite things to do was to play fort in the compost heap. Now, if you're not familiar with compost, because you think if you want something for your garden, you go down to buy it at a local uh, store, which you can do. Uh, compost in the country was where you threw everything you didn't use. Lawn clippings, uh, landscape stuff, old food scraps, dead animals, whatever you found, you 
threw it in the compost pile. And uh, over the winter, the snow sat on that and pressed that stuff down and that stuff rotted in there. And in the spring, you come over and you get wheelbarrows full of that stuff and you bring it out and you rototill it into your soil. And I'll tell you, it'll grow anything. It is rich. It is rich. Well, for a bunch of little boys, playing in the compost pile was like a delight. So we'd go in there and play fort. Now, this was a big compost pile because they had a lot they used it for. So this thing was about eight feet tall, and I don't know how wide it was. and had little slats going across to let the air come in. And we'd hop down in there, man, with our sticks, and we'd play gun like fort. We'd poke the sticks out, and that was our impenetrable fort. And we'd jump in there, and we'd climb up the sides and jump in the compost. We must have smelled wonderful by the end of the day. Anyway. <laughs> One time we're jumping in there and apparently there was a group of yellow jackets that didn't like us stomping on their head. And I got stung and then Donnie got stung and Stan got stung and pretty soon we're getting stung all over. There were hundreds of bees and we're trapped inside this compost thing. It's eight feet tall, we're just little guys. I'm telling you, man, we flew over the wall of that compost pile like we had wings. (laughs) Stan, on the other hand, was the smallest. He had a little trouble getting out. Uh, and we just left him there. I don't even know if he's still alive. <laughs> but we ran as fast as we could to get away from there. We ran into the house. My Aunt Eunice and my mom are yelling, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's bees over there. They're ripping our clothes off. There's bees in our shirt, bees in our pants. We are stung from head to foot. And I can tell you, we couldn't get away from that thing fast enough. We couldn't stay far enough away from it. In fact, the whole summer long, we never went back to the compost pile. People, that's the word Paul was using when he was describing how to get away from stuff that isn't like God and is keeping you from being godly. He said, you flee that stuff like a a nest full of yellow jackets who are stinging you from head to foot. You get away from it. You flee it. Paul told Timothy, flee all that was not like God. But you, man of God, flee from all this. The word flee is where, a word from where we get our English word fugitive. It's one who flees from danger or threat. It's the idea of getting away from the dangers and threats that are going to keep you from being godly. You flee because you see them as a threat and godliness is your pursuit. Flee from all this, Paul told him. So what's the all this? Well, in verse three, he begins by saying, one of the things you flee is ungodly false teaching. Verse three, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, they're conceited and understand nothing. You see, this is the very definition of false teaching. It doesn't square with the sound instruction Jesus gave. Simply put, they aren't teaching what Jesus taught. It can be teaching that puts forth a false Jesus, like the cults, or it can be a teaching that focuses on what Jesus can do for you all the time. But it isn't what Jesus taught. Any teaching that doesn't promote the glory of God, the gospel of God, the kingdom of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, the deity of Christ, a heart for nations, a call to live like Christ in holiness and truth is not godly teaching. So the cults like Mormons and the JWs and Christian science and unity and so many others, you obviously flee them because they're not teaching the true Jesus. 
Mainline churches that teach work salvation or who promote deviant behaviors like homosexuality or same-sex marriage or transgenderism or are all false teachers. They're not teaching you the truth about these things the way Jesus taught them. He said you flee those things. Churches that teach the prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, have your best life now, send us your donation, we'll send you an anointed prayer cloth, holy oil, or a promise that you'll be blessed with health and wealth and a perfect life. This is not what Jesus taught. Flee those things. Churches that don't make the word of God central, the sound instruction of Jesus Christ. People, good churches who teach the word may differ on some issues, but if they're not teaching the word, you're not gonna grow in godliness. You're just not. You gotta flee those things. You should flee from all this, Paul said, because it's coming from ungodly false teachers who Paul said their motive is, their their problem is they're conceited and they understand nothing, verse four. They are conceited, they are proud, It's written in the perfect passive, which means it's a fixed condition for them. They are more concerned about themselves than they are of God. You should flee from their influence or you become like them. That you begin to see God is there to serve you. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels. The word unhealthy is they have a sick craving for these things. They're not like the Bereans of Acts 17 who would search the scriptures to find out if what Paul taught was true. These are people who use the scriptures to stir up controversies. Religious and theological issues that are controversial. They they don't do it not to know God better or to become more like him, but they do it to argue and stir up controversy or promote themselves in their ungodly agenda. And people, this is not the same as good godly people who may disagree on some issues. These are people who are intentionally trying to find issues to stir up trouble so as to promote their own agendas and get people to follow them instead of God. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul said, you flee this teaching and the people who teach it because what they do doesn't lead to godliness. Instead, it leads to this in verse four. They have an unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrels about words that result in this, envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. They teach and live like this because they have a corrupt mind. They're not thinking right. It's been corrupted. And they've been robbed of the truth. They may have embraced it once, but they don't anymore because they love money, not God. And they think that promoting a form of godliness is gonna be the means to financial gain. Paul said, you flee these people. Paul wrote the same thing to Titus who was leading a a rebuilding effort on the island of Crete. He said in Titus 1 verse 10, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group, the the Jews who are teaching you that you need to be circumcised to be saved and other legalistic approaches. They're, They're not teaching what Jesus taught. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. 
One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. People, here's the issue. If you or your family are hearing things that are not from Jesus, would you recognize that? Because if you don't, then you're susceptible to falling prey to the very people he said will will lead you astray. They will keep you from being godly. He went on to tell Titus in Titus 1 verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Look at this, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Well, what motivates people? Personal gain. They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Verse six, Titus, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 6, verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of it. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, a godly life, truly live like God. Not that we are gods, but that we become more and more like him in, co- in conduct, in character, in purpose, in perspective, in worldview. Contentment means you're satisfied. You're not longing for anything else to be satisfied. That's why he said in verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. That's more than just there are no U-Hauls behind the hearst. It isn't just, it isn't just that we come in with nothing and we leave with nothing, that's part of it. But the word phrases that Paul is using there is this idea. Nothing the world can give can add anything to the man himself. In other words, if he is a man of God pursuing godliness, nothing the world can give can add to that or be anything he will need in eternity. He is content being a godly man. That's the idea. In other words, if you are pursuing godly behavior, if you're pursuing Christ and to be like God, then the world can't add anything to you to make you more content. That's what he's saying. And if you don't find that kind of contentment in the pursuit of God, you will not find it in anything the world is offering. I want to be careful with the illustration, not to disclose too much, but you know that my, one of my best friends and best man at my wedding was a professional football player, running back for years in the NFL. He's also coached on three NFL teams. He told me one time he was sitting in his coaching office. I'm not going to tell you who the player was, but if you follow football, you would know him. He was a well-known running back. Came down one day. Sherman said, I was sitting in my office. 
I hear a knock at the door, I look up and here's this famous running back standing there. And he says, coach, you got a minute? And Sherman said, I said to him, sure. What's up? He said, well, I'm feeling empty. Uh, I'm not content. There's something wrong in me. I don't know what it is. And Sherman said to me, isn't it ironic? Here's a man who's tall and handsome, very athletic, very healthy, more money than he can use, uh, got more women chasing him than he can keep track of. He's got homes and cars. He's got everything the world is chasing. And check this out, Sherman said, and he was standing in the doorway having just come down from finance holding a check for $8 million in his hand. And he's knocking on my door saying, coach, there's something missing in my life. I am empty and not content. Can I talk to you? Paul told Timothy, Timothy, don't chase that stuff. That is not going to make you more content. It isn't. God knows your needs. If you've got food and clothing, be content with that. People, it isn't wrong to have a new house. It isn't wrong to have a new car. It isn't wrong to have new clothes. It isn't wrong for any of that stuff. But it's wrong to pursue that without asking the question, why do I want those things? Sometimes there's legitimate reasons. I got to get a new house. I'm moving. I got a bigger house. I've got eight kids now and I started with none. I mean, there are reasons we need things we need. But you've got to ask the question, why do I want these things? Because if you're chasing these things, thinking that if I just have that, I'll be, I'll be okay. You're going to discover that when you get it, you're not okay. Because the world can't add anything to you to make you satisfied. That's why people who have everything are still so empty. Because without God, you will always be empty. Now, God's working this stuff through me because I used to chase money. I used to think it was the key to my happiness. And I was well on my way before I knew the Lord of getting some of that stuff. And I can tell you it doesn't satisfy. So if that's not convicting enough, look what he said in verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge, plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. People, it's not the money, it's the love of it. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermins destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. People, it's not wrong to have savings accounts or an investment account. But that can't be where your hope is. And the goal cannot be to be rich. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see where he said the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. That word healthy is literally the word generous. And the word unhealthy, your whole, eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. The word unhealthy is literally the word stingy. So he said, if your eye looks out and sees possessions as a means to serve yourself and you're stingy with those things, it's a sign of the unhealth spiritually and how far from God you are. But if you can look out and see all of that stuff as a means for you to be generous, and that's why God puts it in your hands, then your eyes are healthy. You're seeing like God sees and you're understanding. Money has the ability to become a rival God, soliciting love and becoming a master we serve. You cannot serve God in money. That's why Jesus said in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. People, here is the reality that I have learned and am constantly being reminded of. You will serve God and use money, or you will serve money and use God. There's no other option. You will either serve God and use money, or you will use money, or you will serve money and use God. That's what these people were doing. They were using God as a means to financial gain, thinking that somehow that was gonna make them content, but it didn't. Paul said, when you see people doing that, don't follow that pattern. You flee it. You flee it. Guys, this is where a lot of guys get stuck. I'm not just talking about the money thing. I'm talking about the fleeing thing. I talk to guys all the time that want to be godly. I want to be godly. But there were times when I wasn't willing to flee the things that were holding me back. Well, I'm willing now. And God's beginning to show me what some of those things are. And the further I put them in my rear view mirror, the more God can develop his character in me. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Man of God, flee from all this. Not only fleeing everything that's not like God, but the pursuit of godly man involves pursuing everything that is like God. Paul said in verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you, keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. You know, I've mentioned before in the past, I, I'm getting older and I can't even remember all the things I've mentioned in the past, but anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I grew up on a farm in rural New England. My parents didn't own the farm. They rented the house and they just planted crops. 
Uh, one day, when I was four or five years old, I remember very distinctly playing near the front wheels of a big old red McCormick tractor, uh, which started up, which was not unusual. I'd been around tractors before. They're loud. I knew what to do, get out of the way. So I got up and I moved, but the wheels turned toward me. And so I moved to the other side and the wheels turned toward me and I started to back up and the wheels got closer and I went faster and the tractor went faster and I realized I don't know who's up there, but they're trying to run me over. So I turned around as fast as my little four or five year old little legs would carry me and I'm running down this road on the farm and the tractor's right on my heels. And I can hear this guy up there, oh, 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 oh. He's thinking it's some big joke. I was scared to death, but I knew my grandfather was in the barn. So I'm running down the road yelling, Grandpa, Grandpa, Grandpa. Well, he heard me, he came out of the barn just in time. I leaped through the air and grabbed his neck. And I wouldn't let go. The guy on the tractor still having a big old laugh. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. I was terrified. But I still remember to this day, while I was running, the thought in my mind was not get away from the tractor. The thought in my mind was I got to get to grandpa. Because if I get to him, he'll make it all go away. He'll make it right. People, that's the word Paul's using when he says pursue. It isn't about being focused on what you're getting away from. It's focusing on who you're running to. So the godly man flees these things, but he pursues Jesus. Because you see, if you focus on the sins you're trying to get away from and the failures you've had and the things dragging you down, guess what your focus is? It's on all the stuff you're trying to flee. But if your real focus is on Jesus and becoming like him, guess what your focus becomes? It's becoming like him and you keep your eyes on him. It's a totally different perspective. It's not about what you're running from, it's about whom you are pursuing. That's why Paul said, you man of God, flee from all this, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. That word pursue is the word persecute. Follow after Jesus with the intent of you're gonna keep pursuing till you have him. Like someone who's trying to persecute. They're after somebody till they get him. You're after Jesus till you get him. So you become more like him. He's already living in you if you're a Christian, but you're pursuing being like him. It's a continual pursuit in order to possess his character. What is a man who is seeking to be godly supposed to be pursuing? I don't have time to develop all these like I'd like today, but righteousness, the quality or character of being right. Being right with God and having his righteousness produced in you. Godliness, a devoutness about you. You're the real deal that you are seeing God's nature displayed more and more in your life, in your decisions, your attitude, your responses, your priorities. Faith means a firm, firm persuasion. This is a person who knows God and knows his word. These aren't people that get jerked all over the barn by circumstance. They have faith and they're pursuing that in God, trusting his word and trusting his person. So whatever the world's throwing at them, God is their constant. They're growing and pursuing love, the agape, unconditional love of God and love for God, meaning God, I love you now. So if you never gave me another thing, if you turned off the spigot of blessings, 
My life became a mess and fell apart in your service. I love you now because I know you love me. And that's translating to love for others. And you will pursue endurance, patient endurance, abiding under the things that happen in the production of this godly character. It's perseverance. See, that's why the Lord's brother James wrote in James 1 verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. You see, in the Bible, you'll find a pattern that the more you endure with Jesus and for Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. And someday, Paul said, as he would tell Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, here's a trustworthy saying, look at this. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. But if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. You'll pursue endurance. You aren't hot one day and cold the next. I'm following Jesus no matter what. And you do it with gentleness, meekness. It's strength under control. People, this is not weakness. These are men who are the strongest of men. Strongness, strongly of character and conduct. Jesus was the meekest man that ever walked the earth. And he held in his hand the omnipotent power of God. He knew how to control that for God's glory and the good of others. This, these are the kind of attributes that we are to pursue. Such men will be ready to keep pursuing this godliness, fighting the good fight of the faith. I love that phrase. It means fighting like God for the things God fights for. Fight like God fights against temptation, falsehood, and evil. Fight the good fight, which is morally and ethically good, like God is morally, ethically, and good. So these are men who fight the good fight, whose ethical views, political views, moral views are all determined by what God says, what promotes godliness, what stands against what is unethical, immoral, or evil. So take any issue, take marriage or adultery, drunkenness or abortion, pornography, homosexuality, gay marriage, transgenderism, divorce, racism, money, sex, power, authority, missions, respect for women, responding to the poor, fathering, any issue you want, you're gonna find these men who fight the good fight are found fighting for what God fights for on all of those things and everything in their life. That's fighting the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Interesting, take hold of it. Lay hold of all the benefits, the privileges, and responsibilities of being granted eternal life in relationship with God. Paul said, Timothy, you confessed this once in the presence of many witnesses. So with God as your witness now in the sight of God and Jesus Christ, who also maintained the good testimony, you keep maintaining that good testimony and that witness because you're doing it for God and the kingdom. 
And remember, Jesus, when he stood before Pontius Pilate, he made the good confession. When his own life was on the line in front of Roman authorities, he never wavered. He told Pilate the truth about who God is, he told him the truth about who he was, and he told Pilate the truth about himself. He never wavered. That's why Paul said to him, you, you keep this command without spot, meaning without wavering, or without blame, unrebukable. Nothing in your life could have blame laid on it. And in fact, if people blame you for things you've done wrong, they're only gonna discover you're already dealing with it the right way with God. And you keep pursuing this, Timothy. It isn't how you start, it's how you finish. You keep pursuing this without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever and ever. Amen. Guys, I want to ask you the question today, what are you pursuing? I've shared with you before, I'm not a godly man yet, but I want to be. And I am pursuing this. And I know many of you are too. And so what I'm learning is there's things that God's going to keep revealing to me that I need to flee because they aren't like God and they aren't going to make me like God. I got to let go of those things. But the most important thing is that I've got to pursue him with a new passion. And you know the beauty of this? I don't care where you are right now in your walk with God, it is never too late to begin this pursuit. The pursuit of a godly man. You can be as godly as you wanna be. Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse three, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Being godly is being like Jesus. And we're gonna pursue this until Jesus comes. And when he comes, you won't be ashamed. Remember what John said in 1 John 2 and 1 John 3? We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Someday, Jesus is gonna come for me. Might be this afternoon, could be next week. Could be 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, I have no idea. But Jesus is coming again for each of us, either on the day of our death or the day of his great appearing. I'm fine with either one. And the fact of the matter is, when he comes, I'm gonna see him as he is in all of his glory. But I can tell you my highest hope is that when Jesus sees me, he's gonna see his own reflection in my life. That's the pursuit of a godly man. Father, I don't know of any better message you could give to a group of guys on a Father's Day. This isn't about how bad we've failed in the past or even how much we've done well. This is about who you are and where we are today with you and what we're willing to pursue.
Thank you for these men. Thank you for these women. Because these principles apply to both of us, to all of us. We are becoming like you. It's a lifelong pursuit. You'll always be showing us stuff we need to be fleeing. But the one we pursue never changes. So thank you for the reminder today that the gospel and godliness in accord in the life of a man who's pursuing to be like God. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing to produce what we cannot and that this offer of pursuit is open to all of us. May we decide today that this is to be the pursuit of our life for your glory and our joy. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.